And a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, along with my good friend and Inside Track co-host, Eb Wilkinson, welcoming you to a special Heritage Foundation edition of Inside Track. Thanks for tuning in. This it's unbelievable, uh, great Tucson winter afternoon. Uh, wow, just such great weather we have. Yesterday was eighty. Today, yeah. 68. Yeah, wow, it's just awesome here. We welcome your calls to the show at 7902040. Eb and I will be chatting it up, and we, we'll have some fun until the bottom of the hour break when Jonathan Butcher from Heritage joins us uh, to talk about the crazy left turns taken by the Kamala Harris AOC Biden administration. In the meantime, we welcome your calls and reply to us on the Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus Hotline, 7902040. This portion of the show is brought to you by my co-host, Eb Wilkinson, and Gary Imus from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby steps approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend upon socialized security. I love it when you say that, Eb, in your commercials. Thank you. I just think that is the brightest thing I've heard for an investment manager ever. The, the, one of the problems is people design in, okay, you're going to get that. Well, A, there's no promise they're going to get that. B, if you've taken a look at your latest Social Security statements, it says, look, this may go down to you know 70% of what we're telling you you're going to get. C, when this thing started in 1935... Uh, it was not there to give you an income. It wasn't supposed to be for you to live on. It was designed for the old ladies that lived past their, you know, past their husbands. Past their husbands. Yeah. <laughs> well, and average age back then, when you died, was sixty-three. Yeah. Hey, Eb manages uh, our family wealth uh, and does a fabulous job. Call Eb at seven seven seven. 1911, and let him help you also. Before we go to our first break, uh, though, Eb, let's talk about some news from the past week. On Thursday afternoon, information was leaked through the left's fake news allies that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman reportedly put a hit out on dissident Jamal Khashoggi. He really wasn't a journalist, folks. Don't be fooled by that. And Biden went nuts, revoking visa status for 76 Saudi officials and royal family associates. Now, the crown prince is no favorite of mine. I doubt if he's yours either. But look at this. The communists in China take back Hong Kong uh, way, way ahead of schedule, jail thousands of opponents, shuts down media and free speech, imprisons and enslaves maybe hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs, threatens Taiwan, 
disappears opponents, starts a worldwide pandemic, lies about it, and Biden does nothing. Yeah. Well, seems to me that the non-essential uh, uh, Biden strike against Syrian targets shows the incompetency of this White House and a dangerous return to the flawed Obama era foreign policy approach to nuclear diplomacy. Oh, yeah. After four years of relative peace, our ally Israel's maritime shipping has also been hit by an Iranian explosion. Yeah, you really can't, you know, there's no, it's like there's no sort of filter on on Biden and everything else going on with those guys. It's just amazing. Just amazing. It's a mess. Yeah. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo continues to suffer through a February he'd rather forget. First, it was lying to federal officials about death counts, and let's face it, his pathetic excuses and cover-ups about the crisis. This week, a former Cuomo aide, Lindsay Boylan, revealed a very shocking pattern of sexual misconduct by the perpetual virtue-signaling governor who couldn't wait to jump on false stories about Brett Kavanaugh himself but he has his own problems now related to strip poker, touching, kissing on the lips. Oh, my God. I can't, you, he, that guy, after he had like a bunch of pizza or something, I can just imagine his breath. But forget about that. I mean, you know, a governor kissing. It's, it's just crazy. It's such a double standard. Right. You know, the hits just keep coming. Where's the National Organization of Women? Well, that. Nowhere. No. And Kristen Gillibrand. Okay. Right. And what about, oh, we must believe the women, unless they're going against their own. Is it any wonder why people in this country have such a low opinion of public officials? Now, CNN and most of the fake news spent practically no time discussing this report. 96 seconds, actually. No condemnations either from the usual lefty uh, lefty women's rights groups either, uh, who, like so many other virtue-signaling lefty groups, preached we should always believe women who come forward to report sexual misconduct during the Kavanaugh uh, commu- uh, confirmation hearings. But Eb, I think this is the inside story. Over the past year, Andrew Cuomo had increasingly been seen as a future natural or national star in the Democratic Party. Is it possible that Kamala Harris and Sleepy Joe aren't saying much because they view him as a future political challenger and figure these stories might deny him um, the chance, much like his father Mario Cuomo, also a, a former uh, governor of New York, the kind of problems he experienced when he failed to reach the White House because of mafia stories that were spread about him uh, by his political competitors. Absolutely. Andrew Fredo, whatever you want to call him, he might have been much better off not waiting for, for Sleepy Joe to run and, you know, figuring he was going to lose to Trump and take his chances in, in 2024. He maybe should have done that because they're trying to wipe him out now. Absolutely. In other news, Nancy Pelosi's $1.9 trillion so-called relief bill screws seniors and triggers $36 billion Dollars in Medicare cuts in 2022, says the Congressional Budget Office. 
House Democrats $1.9 trillion Rona relief bill, which is absolutely chock full of lefty giveaways and pet pork projects, will trigger deep cuts in Medicare. $36 billion unless Congress can do a workaround from a 2010 federal law intended to curb federal deficits, the Congressional Budget Office said Thursday. Their Rona relief bill is one big Democrat bailout for failed blue states like New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and California. Nancy, Chuck, Sleepy Joe, and his very soon likely to be successor, Kamala Harris, um, want well-run red states like us. Arizona, um, uh, Florida, Texas, and another two dozen plus Republican states to bail them out. Remember this when you go to the polls in 2022. A group of House Democrats this week has suggested that Fox News, Newsmax, and AON be, be removed from cable provider platforms. They joined that great defender of the First Amendment, Nick Kristoff, from the New York Times, who referred to conservative providers like, like Fox as toxic, himself calling for the elimination of these news outlets. What is it that other great newspaper, that's the Washington Compost, as Mark Levin refers to it, declares every day under their masthead, democracy dies in darkness? What a bunch of hypocrites. And finally, in what could be perhaps the least reported but most improbable and dangerous news of the week, if you disregard a nearly $2 billion, $2 trillion, $2 trillion. a pork uh, bill, a group of congressional absolute genius Democrats led by AOC and the congresswoman who represents the Palestinian Authority, Ms. Omar, petitioned the White House to share the nuclear command codes with them so they can react to incoming nuclear strikes by committee. I'm sure that ought to work out well, don't oh, you absolutely. think? absolutely. What could go wrong? Yeah. Well, Mr. Producer, we're up on our first break. When we return, Eb and I will take your calls at 790-2040. So stay tuned, and I promise we'll be right back. Get on the phone and call us, gang. We'll be right back. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our biggest customers are actually like ranchers and people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is, A, we sell scrap to the mill. So uh, we have a relationship there, and then we can buy material, what they're making, bringing it back. And so we save on freight, and we have relationships for years with them. So I think that's really our niche market. We'll sell whatever you need. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. It's termite season. Hi, it's me. 
and bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. <laughs> Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control, 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Ev Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. This portion of today's show brought to you by my friends, Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus and Essential Pest Control. These are two great locally owned family businesses you can depend upon. I do. So should you. Eb, I want to play something for you. Uh, a good friend sent it to me. It's fictional, okay, or maybe fictional. Um, Mr. Producer Tom, can you play that for us? This is great. You really need to listen to this. You know, son, you, you're not a kid anymore. Oh, no. I go to health class, Dad. I already know all this stuff. Well, they're going to teach you about everything in health class. Okay, Mr. Smarty Bands? So just listen. When boys and girls get a little older, they start getting interested in one another, right? You know, and non-binary people, agendered, intergendered, FDX, gender fluid people. What? There's more than just boys and girls now, Dad. And they're not girls, they're women. Y yeah, okay, okay sure. <clears throat> well, my point is that sex is uh, it's a very important decision. How are you defining sex? Sex is different things to different people. I guess when, when a penis goes into a vagina? What if there's two men or two women or more? More? How would you define sex with multiple simultaneous partners? Or what if somebody's undergone genital reconstruction or, or is intersex? Uh, no, but I'm just talking about normal, straight... Normal? Come on, Dad. Okay, here we go. Let me ask you this. Son, are you attracted to women? Yes, but I'm, I'm young. Is Emily a woman? Biologically. <sighs> Okay, you're attracted to women. Emily's a woman. So if you were to have sex with Emily... I wouldn't just have sex with Emily. We'd have to make that decision together. Homecoming's not an excuse to ignore consent. I'm not saying to ignore consent. I never said ignore consent. You and Emily, right, consensually decide to have sex. Vaginal? Yes, vaginal. Just the two of us. How many people do you want? Yes, just the two of you, Colin. And I'm playing the traditional male role? Go to homecoming. You seem like you really wanted to talk about this. No, no, I don't want to talk about anything. Ever again. So I can go. Please do. Out. Thank you. Don't forget your corsage. Hey, Dad. Yeah. How do I look? You look very handsome, son. Oh, that's gender coding, but... Get out of my house! Bam! Oh, wow. is that great? <laughs> hey, you know, Boy. This, this is meant to be funny, but, oh my God. I mean, this is like... I mean, this stuff's going on. In schools right now. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is really just crazy stuff. Uh, I had to look half those terms up. In 
<laughs> Inside Track listeners, um, this is funny, but it's not so funny, uh, sort of. Um, do you remember when childhood was still a, an age of innocence? Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. Do you? Yes. Really? Yes. What, like 1972? Still? That was before that. So wh- when do you think it was like still innocent to be a kid? Man, I, I don't know when it changed. I just don't know when it changed, but. I have two sons. The discussion we had, uh, not discussion, discussions, okay? We didn't do it just once. Uh, we had about 25 years ago were about respect, restraint. Um, I, I never talked with them about the stork, okay? But we did have serious talks about pregnancy and resisting pressure for, for sex. Peer pressure. Peer pressure as well. Um, I mean, has our, has our culture so weaponized sex that we now have kids that become pawns in a war which... In- Bruce, they're bringing this into the classrooms at an earlier and earlier age. It's all over the Internet. Uh, YouTube, all the TV shows. It has totally degraded from where it was. I mean, so... That has gone on so far since the 60s, but now you could never get away with showing Archie Bunker, All in the Family, uh, Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons. That would never make it on TV now. And yet this stuff does. So how much do you think the Internet has changed the discussion? Huge. The New York Times just reported, okay, New York Times, I get it. Okay, why am I listening to them? just reported that more than 45 million online photos and videos of children being sexually abused were reported by tech companies, more than double what they found the prior year. Wow. In culture, education, and healthcare, American children are so increasingly targeted for sexual messages, images, and themes at younger ages. Sometimes this is even by taxpayer money through government-led initiatives. And we have Mark calling us. Mark, go ahead. You're with Eb and Bruce on Inside Track. Go ahead. Hey, good afternoon, Mark. Yes, uh, this would be hilarious if it weren't true. If it weren't true, for crying out loud. (laughs) When I think of my dad's uh, sex talk with me when I was, I don't know, high school age, I guess. And uh, I thought I knew everything about it. It was about... I don't know, maybe 20 seconds long and uh, for the discussion he had and how hilarious that was. And anyway, um, and you were talking about restraints, being restrained. Was that with uh, ropes or handcuffs? Restraint. <laughs> restraint, not so, restraints. Oh, restraint. So I doubt, okay. you know, I doubt, I, I mean, maybe I, maybe I don't give my dad enough credit. I don't think restraints ever came into his brain thinking about having those kind of relations. Yeah, well, you know, it was always something of modesty and embarrassment to talk of, um, you know, sexual right. things, and we just did not. And today, I don't. It's just amazing today what I see happening. But um, especially, you know, as a high school teacher, it's just unbelievable. What do you see? I mean, what do you see in in class today? What, in terms of the sexual re-revolution? Um, unbelievable things that 
that I've seen. And that's not why I'm calling, though. I have something else to call and talk about. But So don't hang up on me too soon. I will. Uh, the, um, uh, anything from hearing about students making porno flicks with their cell phones. Wow. To, you know, um, a parent whose uh, child uh, left eighth grade in you know in the early summer and goes to high school as a ninth grader and goes from a girl to a boy all of a sudden she's mm-hmm. a, their lifelong daughter becomes a boy so uh, mark what'd you really call about today yes yeah. so anyway money and uh you know people just don't understand these great big numbers like a trillion dollars is a a number with 12 zeros it's a thousand billion yeah, it's so too big to fit on a calculator. They don't understand a billion either. Right. And uh, when you talk about, well, let's say the United States, they're talking about, oh, it's rounded up to $2 trillion. It's got to be that because they're going to put extra money in just to administer it. And that's not even part of the package. And uh, so when we have, let's say, a third of a billion people in the United States, like 333 million, right. 333,000, whatever a third of a billion people. And when you divide that out with $2 trillion, that would be $6,000 per man, woman, and child in the United States. And are we getting that? Is every person in the country going to get Six thousand dollars. No, but a whole bunch of it. But a whole bunch of it. We're paying. We're paying off. We're bailing out states like California and 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 New York and so on. Illinois. So this is not a COVID uh, response. No, it's a bailout. It's it's a pork pie for for Democrats. Label it labeled as something attractive for people. Right. Well, that's they they like fancy labels. Yeah. Well, Mark, we are continuously do they lie. Yeah, and we are day 347 of the 15-day Arizona flatten the curve. <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, yeah. 347. Oh, that's almost a year, huh? Exactly. <laughs> almost. Well, you can do the math. Hey, Mark, I, I so, got to I gotta get to a video we need to play here. Uh, thanks right. for calling in, and uh, keep listening to the show. Thanks very much. All right. So, Mr. Producer Tom, I'd like you to play a video this is from a hearing last week uh, at the U.S. Senate. Rand Paul talking to Rachel Leland Levine. What I'm alarmed at is that you're not willing to say absolutely minors shouldn't be making decisions to amputate their breast or to amputate their genitalia. For most of our history, we believe that minors don't have full rights and the parents need to be involved. So... I'm alarmed that you won't say with certainty that minors should not have the ability to make the decision to take hormones that will affect them for the rest of their life. Will you make a more firm decision on whether or not minors should be involved in these decisions? Senator, uh, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field. uh, And if confirmed to the position of Assistant Secretary of Health, I would certainly be pleased to come to your office and talk with you and your staff about the standards of care and the complexity of this field. Let it go into the record that the witness refused to answer the question. Um, Wow. Dr. Levine, it should be noted, was the Pennsylvania uh, enhanced uh, female public health director who also bears responsibility for her abysmal handling of the Wuhan virus 
which, like neighboring New York State, led to the needless death of many Pennsylvanians last year. Now she has been selected by the president to create and promote some of the most radical health standards in this country's history. She affirms support for gender mutilation and puberty blockers for underage children. What have we become in this country? Charles Heller, thanks for calling in. Um, Any thoughts on Dr. Levine's um, uh, uh, unreasonableness unreasonableness, uh, refusing to answer the question from Senator Paul? I can only think of one response, and it's that uh, I guess I picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. (laughs) Well, this would be the week to make you start sniffing glue if there was ever a week. And I don't know who the sick friend was who sent you that first clip you played. but He's sick. Believe me, he's sick. <laughs> he is one sick guy. Sick, twisted freak. Yeah, so the Equality Act. Uh, the Congress has also taken this up. The House has already voted on it. Uh, they say it uh, promotes equality. Or, Charles, does it add to discrimination uh, because they're wiping out the, gen- the, the definition of gender, not by physical no, traits? I think but- it has... I think it has some positive aspects in that uh, the private bathrooms of the Congress people will now be uh, will now be cross gender available, and uh, the first time a man tries to uh, use the uh, next stall to, man- to Nancy Pelosi, you may see a change in policy. Well, you know these guys; these guys or are or not. These guys are they're they're off on on a crazy uh, left turn track. It seems like over and over and over again. Hmm. You know, the the proper response to this, though, is to simply create private institutions that, that do not like Hillsdale, which are not subject to it. Well, good point, because Hillsdale uh, is a great institution of higher learning, and, and, and there is great academic and, and intellectual freedom that exists there. And, and look, I'm not saying... You know, this is a legitimate conversation to be having, um, but when when the President of the United States is making appointments to uh, high-level government positions, uh, you know, uh, these are uh, uh, Senate-required confirmations, um, on the basis of what they hope will look like this dream team of, of, of all these different types of people and various colors and ages you really got to wonder do they want the best or they or do they just are they just trying to look for a bright shiny object that their uh leftist supporters will will like it's not even it's not even that clearly defined this is purely an issue it is a fulcrum towards a lever of power and what this is is comes out of critical race theory which is an outgrowth of the frankfurt school and the idea is it is a method of promoting class struggle because class struggle didn't work in the United States. So you have to invent new classes, you know, gender fluid people and all that, which it was in that first clip that you played. There's a, a, a desire to create mechanisms and tools to have 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 a fulcrum so that you can pry people loose from their rights and control. Them. Well, Charles, That's funny, what this is. funny you mention that because that is the that is the most awesome segue. You didn't even know this was a segue that you gave me to our next guest, Jonathan Butcher from Heritage Institute, and our topic for discussion today is critical race theory. So on that well, note. I don't- 
On I that? don't own a I don't own a Segway, but I do have a, a mountain bike. Does that count? Uh, that's for tomorrow's show, 10 a.m. Oh, right. okay. 10 a.m. <laughs> uh, swap shop with Charles. You're listening swap inside track. Trains are coming. Yeah, you're listening inside track. Yeah, we'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. Fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control, 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. Eb's here, Bruce is here. Before we get to our uh, guest, Jonathan Butcher from Heritage, do you have a home improvement project you want to get going, but you're worried if you can afford the luxury you deserve? Corazon Cabinets sells top quality cabinets by J&K, Legacy, and Conestoga. Visit the Corazon crew at their new showroom located at 4700 South Park. Meet Joy, Allie, and David to see their fabulous collection and let them plan the kitchen or bath of your dreams. Call Corazon Cabinets, 488-2266. You got it right this time. (laughs) How do you not know this number? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh, my God. I'm just trying to see if you're awake. Joy is going to spin. Yeah, yeah, she's already spinning. (laughs) Get to work. On beautifying your home in 2021, Corazon Cabinets, luxury you can afford, 488-2266 for crying out loud. They do a great job. All right. Jonathan Butcher is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Heritage Foundation. Oh, Jonathan, man. Jonathan, I am so sorry. When I'm blowing the intro, that you know I'm having like a serious seizure problem here. Uh, At the Heritage Foundation and has Arizona roots, which I'll get to a little later. He has researched and testified on education policy and school choice 
uh, programs around the U.S. His work has appeared in journals uh, such as uh, Education Next and the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy. Uh, he has been a frequent uh, contributor on local and national TV outlets, including C-SPAN, Fox News, and HBO's Vice News Tonight. That had to be interesting, and he's been a guest on many radio programs. Now he's on Inside Track. Jonathan was a co-recipient of the State Policy Network's Bob Williams Award for the most influential research for a proposal to protect free speech on campus. Man, could we use that. Jonathan previously served as the educational director at the Goldwater Institute, where he remains a senior fellow. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. And we've dedicated uh, today's show to the great work that Heritage does framing political thinking and improving public policy in America. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, let's talk about critical race theory if we can, Jonathan. It's in the news. The new administration and the left is fascinated uh, by critical race theory and what it can do for their for their goals. I think you've described as uh, critical race theory as the new intolerance. Can can you give our listeners a primer on what critical race theory is? Well, sure, and everyone's seen it around them, right? You see it in the cancel culture in the media, where suddenly someone's tweets from years ago wind up uh, with them losing, say, a spot hosting a national show, right? Or you see it in classrooms uh, or in the school board room, where school boards are getting rid of the names of our founding fathers from the the title of the school, uh, as well as in higher education, where the Speakers are shouted down for their ideas. So, you know, all of these things, right, trace their origins to critical race theory. Do you think that this is a a political tactic, or is it really a means to change society, or both? Well, it's... Yes, I mean it's 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 both. I mean, I think it started as as the latter, right? I mean, when when we talk about what um, a, a a primer on critical race theory, right, and and where it where it comes from, uh, and how it leads up to political change, what we have to remember is that uh, critical theory came out of uh, Germany uh, right around the time of World War One, where there were a group of academics who were looking to find what they called the authentic Marxism because they were disillusioned with what had happened in uh, what was then had just become the Soviet Union. And uh, so these these academics founded a center at the Frankfurt, uh, at the University of Frankfurt there. Now, uh, in one of the many odd twists of the tale of critical theory, uh, the Nazis chased them out of Europe uh, leading up to World War II, and they found a home at Columbia University in New York. And uh, and developed this concept of, uh, of of critical theory that married two ideas. It married the idea of Marxism, where the world is divided between oppressors and the oppressed, and the concept of postmodernism, where there is this belief that there is no authentic truth. So they put the two together, and and those are the roots of a number of different movements that have led us to what we have today. Mm. You've said that critical race theory, uh, quote, underpins identity politics, which reimagines the U.S. as a nation riven by groups, each with specific claims on victimization. To what end? I mean, is it is it is it political payback or or is it really um, a, a greater goal than that? 
overturning society? Well, I think from the academic perspective, what the academics wanted to do was to build resistance among the uh, intellectuals. And uh, in fact, one of the founders of critical race theory, a, a fellow named Derek Bell, once said something to the effect of that he was hoping that um, by building ac- uh, resistance in academia, it would create resistance in society. Now, resistance to what? Well, of course, the roots being in Marxism, the resistance is to any system of power, right, any system of authority. So, you know, f- from from those that were designing this concept at the outset, the idea is that suppression, oppression is all around us, and so we must be in a constant state of resistance or revolution, right? Which, of course, you know, should bring to mind the elements of, of communism, right, where it came out of. But I don't think that that is ultimately where critical race theory wanted to go. Uh, I think what critical legal theory did, so critical legal theory is one of the children of the original critical theory. So critical legal theory came in the 1960s and 70s, and their idea was that American law and the Constitution is systemically racist, right? It, it is. It cannot be neutral. And so it is, it is biased, um, uh, ha- has it woven into the very fabric of the America's founding documents. And so critical race theory picked up on that idea and said, uh, well, we must see everything through the world, uh, through the lens of race, that was the the addition that critical race theory made. So that's how you get what you were just describing. That's how we get identity politics, is that everyone must be put into a group, right? You are first in either the oppressed or the oppressors. And then second, you're categorized according to ethnicity. And thereby, if you are in a group that has ever at any time in world history ever been a victim of anything, you have claims to additional social benefits. So what are you supposed to do if you're um, a a white woman from Pekin, Illinois, um, whose family um, owned a farm for the last uh, few generations and, um, you know, graduated from college and is just, you know, raising a family, maybe, you know, had a a career of her own, uh, you know, with her husband having his own. Uh, what What did that lady from Pekin, Illinois, do to aggravate anybody well i think simply by uh, definition by, by definition of her by association right her association with her uh, her you know forefathers uh, her association with her family makes her makes her guilty because mm-hmm. it's not individuals right critical race theory is not interested in individuals it's interested in groups so you are guilty by association you're guilty by ethnicity um, and you know i think you know, so let's be fair, right? So uh, critical race theorists would say, now, wait a minute, what we're really trying to do is is create additional, greater compassion, a greater sense of social justice. But they don't stop there. They won't just say, hey, we just want to be compassionate. In fact, those that have, uh, who are critical theorists who have written that very thing also say that uh, compassion is not enough. It must be tied to not only moral in- indignation, but it must be tied to a constant state of aggression and resistance, right? There's a constant feeling that there must be rebellion and that there is always something out there that is trying to get you. And that's one of the dangers of using critical race theory in schools and uh, from K-12 to higher ed, not to mention in public policy. 
And critical race theory is a factor in public education today, isn't it, even into the primary grades? Oh, absolutely is. Yeah, absolutely is. You can find it in, you can find it in math. <laughs> in fact, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, funded a program called Equitable Math that is a set of standards that a, a uh, academics from the University of California system, as well as a number of officials from public school districts across California, uh, San Mateo, Sacramento, uh, San Diego, we're all involved, LA, in putting this together. And so you have a set of math standards that say math needs to be taught for resistance. It needs to be what? taught to get rid of white supremacy. Oh, yeah. it has. There's nothing in these particular standards that have to do with actual uh, addition and subtraction. It's all about changing white supremacy. And that's how do they, so they, in the standards. Wow, Jonathan, this is Eb. How do they figure that math is inherently racist? That's a great. That's a great question. I mean, I think you know. I think what what they do is they they play on people's sense of guilt, right? Because if you can make someone feel guilty, it's much easier to get them to agree with you or to follow you. So if you lob an accusation again, not at them personally, but at some group that they're associated with, it's easy to get them associated with guilt, right? Wow. And so then it's harder to get them to to argue with you. So they make the case that well, we have these huge achievement gaps. So that must be due to racism. It can't just be due to technical things like the way that we teach addition and subtraction. It has to be due to systemic racism. Again, this is that's part of the core, right, the core ideas of critical race theory. And so instead of uh, changing the way that we teach it or somehow doubling down on ideas of success, they actually, and again, this is in the standards, they say that there is more than one way to do things, uh, to do things and uh, there may be um, more than one right answer. And, and so that's the concept, is that there, there really is not truth. And so this gets us back to what I was saying at the beginning. That's why I took the time to mention the Marxist roots and the postmodern roots of critical theory, right, which is the parent of critical race theory, because uh, – this denial of truth has wide-ranging implications, right? This is a serious thing. If you have educators saying that uh, absolute truth or authentic truth um, is not as important as your narrative or as your experience, why then that changes the way we look at even something that is not quite a hard science but almost a hard science in the idea of math. Wow, and and that just throws uh, all these famous black mathematicians under the bus on that well total, it's interesting total disregard they, for that well it's interesting in the standards they say that they they want they, they say two things that are interesting they say one is that they want uh, minority um, mathematicians who have just done what you said right who, who had founded great uh, either theorems or who was significant to the development of math as a concept they want them to receive the credit for for which they are due, which is very fair, right? I mean, I don't sure. think anyone As it really should, should be. want that different. However, they also say that students need to be enlisted in that effort. So basically what they're calling students to do is to always be looking for evidence of racism, always be looking for evidence that you are being slighted, and assume that it's there, and take every opportunity to then act in a rebellious way or in a resistant way to whatever's going on in culture that would, um, you know, somehow um, make it appear that um, 
someone who is uh, black is not receiving the the, um, the attention that they were they were due, right? So it sort of recruits students to be um, activists, and that again kind of leads to this idea of action civics, which is also something that's come out of critical race theory, as opposed to looking for the good in people and the greatness in themselves. Well, that's right. I mean, there's no evidence in you know academic research that by improving somebody's self-esteem that that automatically translates into making them uh, a better student, right? Or that um, uh, it, it will make them um, better assimilated, right? Or feel like they are a part of America if you only tell them how different they are than Americans, right? Or how different their ethnicity is from what is white or privileged, which is associated with uh, being an American. I have a, so they're, they're driving a wedge. Yeah, I, I have a blended family. Uh, my son is married to a first-generation American Chinese lady. They have four children of their own, and nine years ago they flew, or he flew, to the Republic of Congo and adopted two little girls, ages two and a half and three and a half or so, that were war orphan babies. And let me tell you something. What I see there is completely different from what I'm hearing with the critical race theory. Uh, without question. And I think that those that have been, you know, following very closely how this concept of multiculturalism and ethnicity has developed over the last 150 years in the United States have said that, you know, uh, when African Americans go to Africa, they often come home feeling like, they are more American than they were when they left, mm. right? And so there's this idea that, well, we really just need to tell them how African they really are, and that will uh, somehow um, remedy what the what slavery or Jim Crow did in the past, when the two things are really unrelated, right? What we need to be doing is to be letting people know um, how American we all are, right? Even though we are different, and we bring something different to this nation um, by emphasizing our ability to be a part of a culture. That is what brings people together. By emphasizing how different people are or how they have been slighted in the past, uh, that drives a wedge, right, into culture and into communities. So, so Jonathan, um, when par- what must parents do to be aware of what is being taught in the classroom? And, and what has happened across the country, I mean, you obviously know uh, this field probably like very few others uh, in, 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 your, in your area of study do. What happens when parents do figure out, like they did in Chandler, Arizona, when they protested against the deep equity program uh, being implemented there? So what, what do parents need to do and, and what has happened when parents rise up and, and say, no, we're not doing this? So this period now during the pandemic, and, and hopefully we're at the tail end of the school closure. From your lips there, to God's so. ears, Jonathan. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully we're getting near the end here. Um, but nevertheless, this is, has been a unique opportunity for parents to see what students are being taught, right? When they've been home doing virtual school, and um, uh, I think it's been a unique time for families to actually uh, experience what students are being exposed to. So use this opportunity so that you are equipped when they go back to class to have a conversation with the teacher, with the school board member, about uh, how you feel about this curriculum, how you feel about this material. 
Um, I think that's one. I mean, it, it, it really is going to come back to parents finding ways to engage themselves. And you can start with your child's teacher. Uh, you can move to the school board, right? School boards, um, it's often hard for one parent, right, to, to uh, get their message across to a school board. But when there's more than one parent, especially when you have a lot of parents upset about what they feel like is a change to their community, right, to the culture and the character that they want represented, that's something that a school board is more likely to listen to. Um, and then I think as a work that the Goldwater Institute has been involved in, especially in the past uh, two years, is this idea that we need to make curriculum more transparent. We need to make it so that right. any taxpayer who wants to see what's being taught doesn't have to go to a school board meeting and doesn't even have to show up at the district office. They should be able to go online to the district's website and see the syllabus for what their high school student is learning. They should be able to see the textbooks that are being used for their elementary child. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think it's too much to ask for that material to be made readily available. Um, you know, teachers are going to uh, uh, pick up things as, you know, the weeks go by and stuff they want to add to the classroom. I think it's very fair to ask that if it's something um, uh, that is uh, not, you know, a, a big giant textbook, but a link or a worksheet, uh, that they make it available, right, for parents to access. Because they certainly have for students, right? When students were virtual, you know, all of this work was uh, provided either via email or, you know, some sort of messaging, you know, online message kind of thing. So uh, it's not too much to ask to make that make that available. It's a, a quick story, you know. Um, so a couple of years ago, um, Governor Abbott in uh, Texas actually called for a, a teacher to be fired from a, uh, a school district because the teacher had showed a, um, a comic to the, his class, and the comic had a couple of panels that showed police over the years and essentially equated them with um, the KKK. And wow. they, the teacher asked the students to write you know, an essay about it. I think they were eighth graders. And so the parents didn't find out about it until it hit the headlines, right? I mean, they, nobody found out about it until a child brought it home, a parent saw it, and then told, you know, went on social media and then eventually made its way to a reporter and then, you know, became public. So it shouldn't have happened that way, right? If, if it's something like that, why then parents should know what their child's going to be exposed to before it happens. So let, we talked about compassion uh, a few minutes ago and we talked about um, uh, different classes, different groups being, being uh, uh, discriminated against and so on. Um, so now there is a movement we've seen in the news where Asian students are being attacked across the country um, by by um, by African Americans. Um, where do where do Asian uh, where do Asian students' rights and and black students uh, extend to? And that's a great question because it's one of the many inherent contradictions in critical race theory. Um, and it starts with this idea called intersectionality, which is a fancy word that really just means uh, you associate yourself with a group, right, either by ethnicity or gender or something like that. And if you are a member of more than one group, you can claim um, victimhood or claim a right to some sort of additional social benefit because you're a member of multiple groups, right? So if you uh, if you claim membership with um, uh, based on gender uh, as a homosexual and then with a particular minority group, uh, then you can say, okay, I am doubly oppressed because of my 
uh, of my chosen, um, you know, uh, affiliation with these with these. We're groups. trying to outer press uh, one another now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, but what that draws us to is that some are actually um, um, more worthy of the social justice mantle than others, right? So, at what point? Um, does it, is it not just enough to be female, right? Or is it not just enough to be of a particular ethnicity? And so that brings us to the question that you just raised, right? So how is it that one minority is more deserving of um, assistance than another, right? Um, because that's, that is not really what critical race theory can answer. They cannot define social justice in terms that would result in equality under the law. Why does That's it seem really what they're after? Why does it seem that social justice then sometimes feels like revenge? Well, because, I mean, that's often what um, what is the result, right? So, you know, quick example, there was a, a student at Smith College a couple of years ago who was in a eating lunch in a this building. This is the one we heard about this week. Oh, you did? Okay. So, yeah. you know, it was a New York Times story about this one. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the student claimed that they'd been discriminated against, um, and everyone was quick quick to, you know, say, hey, look, this is a, a violation of social justice. We need to, you know, make a statement right now. And so the president of the college made a statement. The New York Times ran a headline. The Washington Post ran a headline. CNN. You know, everyone was saying this is just another example of how a minority student is, is mistreated because of systemic racism. When it turned out, the investigation that was performed found that there wasn't any. So there's this, this eclipse happens where you take social power, you're really after power over others, right. and it eclipses social justice. And once you've done that with social power using guilt, we were talking about guilt earlier, guilt is a weapon here, and you use it on other people because it's very hard when someone feels guilty to, um, for that person not to simply agree with you or follow what you're doing. And the, and the and, racism guilt that exists in this country, once somebody is labeled as a racist, it, it, forget about the public forgetting. It's almost impossible for the person to forget that they're ever accused of that. It's, it's just incredible. Well, that's right, because we, I think, all know what a wretched thing racism is, right. right? I mean, I think that is deep in the American psyche, despite what we're told by, you know, the media or by uh, those in the critical race theory world. It really is embedded. Otherwise, why would people be so afraid of being guilty of that, right? Well, Jonathan, we're we going to need to, we're going to need to leave it there for today. Thanks so much for dropping by for a it chat. It was great. The work you're doing is very important. Insiders, we hope you've enjoyed today's show with Jonathan Butcher and Heritage uh, Institute. Uh, Heritage Foundation. We have another great show for you next week when we'll hear from Terry Schilling from American Principles Project. Until next Saturday, this is Bruce Ash and, and Eb Wilkinson wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579.
Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street, open Monday through Saturday. I'm Ev Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. 